You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 69, God Save the Republic. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you one more time that patrons of the show can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free. If you'd like to join, find us on patreon.com. Anyway, last episode, we discussed the tortured relationship between the French government and the Vatican. When Napoleon took power, this struggle had been raging for nearly a decade, and had just recently reached a new low, when Republican troops arrested Pope Pius VI. This conflict seemed totally intractable. Many on both sides believed compromise was fundamentally impossible that the Catholic Church simply could not coexist with the type of modern nation-state the revolutionaries were trying to build. However, Napoleon was not among them. He persisted with his outreach to the right, and, at least in some quarters, he got a positive reception. Although, as we discussed last time, some royalists badly misunderstood these signals believing this was all a prelude to the restoration of the old regime. Still, despite the miscommunication, Napoleon's message of national reconciliation was landing. Thousands of émigrés began to return from overseas. Many brought with them valuable skills, money, and connections. Within France itself, many of the remaining royalist rebels emerged from their hiding places to take Bonaparte's amnesty. Each returned émigré and disarmed guerrilla fighter represented a small political victory for Napoleon, one less potential enemy for his new France, and one more piece of evidence that his agenda of accommodation towards conservatives was working. By early 1802, after only two years of Napoleonic rule, over 45,000 émigrés had made the journey back to France, nearly half the total number. One early returnee was François-René de Chateaubriand, a 32-year-old former aristocrat from Brittany who was beginning to make a name for himself as a Catholic intellectual. He was able to return back to France almost as soon as Napoleon took power, largely through the personal intervention of Alisa Bacciocchi, Napoleon's sister, who was a great admirer of Chateaubriand's work 
and assured him that her brother would not have him arrested. Chateaubriand was a conservative who opposed the revolution, but he was not a reactionary. His conservatism was more moderate, pragmatic, and forward-thinking than that of many of his peers. Many Catholic émigrés became obsessed with the idea of regaining power in France and simply forcing people back into obedience to the church. Chateaubriand had a very different approach. He also wanted to bring people back to Catholicism, but by persuasion, not by government decree. He believed that with the power of the pen, he could recontextualize the old Christian values and make them relevant and attractive in the post-revolutionary world. Chateaubriand was perceptive. There was indeed a large, eager audience for this project. For decades, Enlightenment principles had dominated European intellectual life. But at the dawn of the 19th century, the movement seemed to be running out of steam. Some of this was just the natural process by which any intellectual or cultural trend reaches the end of its lifespan, becomes stale, and finally is challenged and superseded by new ideas. But this process was probably helped along by the revolution. With an Enlightenment-inspired republic dominating European affairs, Enlightenment principles were no longer merely a theoretical matter for discussion and debate. They had concrete expression in France, and a measurable impact on the lives of real people. Many adherents of these ideas cheered on the French Republic, but others found themselves disillusioned and began to look for answers elsewhere. Many of these seekers from among the educated classes were attracted to what Chateaubriand had to offer. He used reason and argument to make his point, just like an Enlightenment essayist. But, unlike the philosophes, he spoke eloquently to the spiritual side of the human experience. After decades of coldly rational Enlightenment discourse, there was a real hunger for this type of writing. And, of course, conservatives were overjoyed to finally have an advocate who could go toe-to-toe with the intellectual heavyweights of the left. As we've discussed in past episodes, Napoleon's personal relationship with Catholicism was ambiguous at best. If the Enlightenment was running out of steam, no one told Napoleon. He was always a liberal, a skeptic, and a rationalist. He had no great personal need to go looking for spiritual truths in Catholic apologetics. But that's not to say Napoleon didn't see value in Chateaubriand's work. In fact, Napoleon once said, quote, Everything that is great and national in character must acknowledge the genius of Chateaubriand. End quote. Napoleon and Chateaubriand were very different men on very different missions. But for the moment at least, they shared the common goal of reconciling Catholicism with the social and political realities of post-revolutionary France. This shared interest led to an unlikely partnership. Within months of his arrival in Paris, Chateaubriand was publishing pro-regime articles in Bonapartist journals, and unofficially advising Napoleon on how to approach the Catholic Church for a reconciliation. Bonaparte's outreach to the right was working. Something was changing. But it wasn't all peace, love, and harmony. 
in some parts of France, returning émigrés demanded that their pre-revolutionary properties be restored. Obviously, this was not well received by the new owners of these holdings, and the ensuing disputes sometimes erupted into violence. Napoleon gave his police minister, Joseph Fouché, authority to arrest any émigré who represented a threat to national security. Some returned émigrés soon found themselves in custody, typically without charge or trial. It's not much of an amnesty if the government reserves the right to unilaterally renege on the deal. However, it is worth mentioning that there were relatively few of these cases. We are probably talking about dozens rather than hundreds, according to one historian. Still, it's been estimated that up to one-third of all the resources of the French police were dedicated to monitoring the activities of returned émigrés. Which begs the question, was the regime really interested in reconciliation, or was this a case of keep your friends close, but your enemies closer? Perhaps Napoleon was ready to welcome the émigrés back to France, but was just not yet ready to trust them. Given all that had taken place over the last ten years, I think we can hardly blame people on both sides for being wary of one another. But this question of Napoleon's motives would be moot unless this project of reconciliation with the Vatican bore fruit. As we discussed last time, without some permanent resolution to France's religious schism, this détente between the émigrés and the revolutionaries could never be anything more than a temporary truce. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Bonaparte's overtures to the Vatican began in Italy in 1800, the summer after his seizure of power, during the campaign which culminated in the Battle of Marengo. After French troops retook the city of Milan, the de facto capital of northern Italy, Napoleon made an address to the priests of the city. Quote, I am convinced that the Catholic religion is the only faith that can ensure real happiness to a well-ordered society and strengthen the foundations of good government. And so, I assure you that at all times and in every way, I shall endeavor to protect and defend it. I regard you, ministers of religion which I share, as my dearest friends. My firm intention is that the Christian religion, Catholic and Roman, shall be maintained untouched. Now that power is in my hands, I am resolved to do whatever is necessary to secure and guarantee the faith. Have no alarm over the way in which the late Pope was treated. The misfortunes of Pius VI were partly due to the wretched intrigues of his advisers, and partly to the cruel policy of the Directory. When I am able to discuss matters with the new Pope, 
I hope I shall be fortunate enough to remove every obstacle that may still remain in the way of reconciliation between France and the head of the Church. End quote. I think that lays out Napoleon's hopes for this project very clearly. He was inviting the Church to become a junior partner in his new regime. If the Vatican was willing to accept the supremacy of Napoleon's government, they would be rewarded with official support and a free hand in their internal affairs. Napoleon's willingness to blame both Pope Pius VI and the previous revolutionary government for the breakdown in relations between France and the Vatican signaled his desire to turn the page on the past, and his willingness to admit that the religious policies of previous governments had been misguided and, more importantly, that he stood willing and ready to change them. Bonaparte understood that new leadership meant an opportunity for a fresh start. Whatever else you can say about a coup, it certainly emphasizes a break in continuity with the previous government, in a way that can create openings for change. Reading over this quotation, I can't help but be reminded of Napoleon's overtures to the Muslim clergy of the Middle East during the expedition to Egypt he had struck much the same note with them, presenting himself as a loyal defender of the faith, who desired only to support the practice of true religion. In this case, it was slightly more plausible, since Napoleon had actually been baptized and raised as a Catholic, and despite the deliberate vagueness with which he presented his religious beliefs in Egypt, he never formally adopted Islam. I think it goes to show you how Napoleon viewed religion as a benefit to society that served a deep human need for spirituality, which Napoleon understood was widespread, even if he didn't really share it himself. As Napoleon himself put it, quote, The Christian religion will always be the most solid support of every government clever enough to use it. End quote. This was about creating another pillar of stability and legitimacy for the Napoleonic regime, not moral or spiritual truth. Shortly after making this statement to the Catholic clergy of Milan, Napoleon won his great victory at Marengo, and returned to the city in triumph, convinced he had just struck the decisive blow that would end the War of the Second Coalition. In celebration, the First Consul attended a Te Deum at Milan's Cathedral of the Nativity of St. Mary, a short service of thanksgiving. The choir sang in Latin, O Lord, in thee I have trusted, let me never be confounded. Napoleon was offering up a very Catholic act of gratitude to God for delivering the armies of the French Republic victory over the armies of the Holy Roman Emperor. It was a bizarre scene that would have been totally unimaginable only a few years earlier. It was the first time a French political leader had publicly attended a Catholic service in over ten years. Napoleon had made his intentions towards the Vatican abundantly clear. Whenever Bonaparte sought peace, he was careful to do so in public, to burnish his image as a figure of moderation and accommodation. And it worked. It may seem hard to believe today, but at this stage in his career, Napoleon was widely admired as a peacemaker, both within France and abroad. As he attempted to lure the new pope, Pius VII, to the negotiating table, 
Napoleon had more to offer than conciliatory speeches and symbolic gestures, a real tangible bargaining chip of tremendous value. The body of the previous pope, Pius VI. Shortly after taking power, Bonaparte had the body reburied, with all the ceremony and reverence due to a former leader of the church. Most importantly, the service was conducted by Catholic clergymen, real Catholic clergymen, pro-Vatican priests who had not taken their oath to the Republic, and thus were still legally considered outlaws by the government in Paris. This had been a red line for the previous French government. They had not even been willing to negotiate on this point. Napoleon had just conceded it freely, without any preconditions or quid pro quo from the church. This gesture showed that this reconciliation Napoleon had in mind was more than just talk. He was willing to put things on the table that had been considered sacrosanct under previous governments. Napoleon didn't just want détente with the Vatican, he wanted a deal that restored normal relations between Paris and Rome, and he was willing to grant concessions to make that happen. By now, I'm sure some of the business people and savvy dealmakers in the audience are ready to scream, these are not good negotiating tactics. Illustrating to the other side that you're desperate to make a deal and willing to give up a lot to get one, is a good way to ensure you get the worse end of the bargain. But one of Napoleon's great skills as a negotiator was his ability to size up his opponents, and he believed the Vatican was also desperate for a reconciliation. In fact, they needed this deal perhaps even more than the French. The last ten years had been incredibly damaging for the church. The French Revolution and its aftermath were probably the worst crisis to face Catholicism since the Reformation. And by the time Napoleon took power, Protestantism was nearing its 300th birthday. It was far more distant to the people of Napoleon's time than the Napoleonic era is to us today. So it's safe to say there was very little institutional memory within the Vatican of how to deal with a disaster of this scale. During the worst years of the 1790s, the church's prospects in Western Europe looked almost as bad as they had during the Reformation. Large swaths of formerly Catholic Europe had slipped from the grasp of the Vatican, and there was no indication they would be returning to the fold anytime soon. The government of the largest Catholic country in Europe was making a serious attempt to purge Catholicism from its population. As we know, they encountered a great deal of resistance, but many people had sided against the church, and many more had silently acquiesced. Worse, this was not confined to the borders of France. All over Europe, aspiring revolutionaries were agitating for their own countries to follow the French example, and purge what they called superstition from their societies. The Vatican had never formally joined the war against France, but offered substantial support to the governments of the First Coalition as they fought to stamp out this dangerous movement. They had watched with horror as the Republican armies turned back the forces of the old order and began to push over France's borders, spreading the contagion of revolution in every place they conquered. The Vatican's hard line against the revolution 
seemed only to have encouraged the most zealous atheists in the revolutionary ranks. The recently deceased Pope, Pius VI, had reigned for an incredibly long time, nearly 25 years, longer than any other Pope since St. Peter himself. He had done a lot during that quarter century, left all kinds of legacies in different areas of doctrine, fostered the development of Catholic institutions, and, more or less, successfully managed the Church's relationships with the governments of the various lands where it operated. But, despite that lifetime of service to the Church, and 25 years of mostly competent leadership, nobody at the Vatican had any illusions about how history would remember Pope Pius VI. He was the man who lost France. He was the first pope ever to be buried by the enemies of the church, without a Catholic funeral. He was the man who presided over the greatest cataclysm to befall the church in generations. After the death of Pius VI, the cardinals of the church met in a conclave to elect a successor. For the first time in over four centuries, the meeting was not held in Rome, which was still under the control of the Republicans, but in Venice, under the protection and watchful eye of the Holy Roman Emperor. In return for his generosity in hosting the conclave, the Emperor made it clear to the cardinals that he expected to see someone close to the Habsburg family elected Pope. However, other candidates had spent years building support among the cardinals, and they were not prepared to step aside simply because the emperor said so. The conclave was deadlocked, and complex, fevered negotiations began to decide on a compromise candidate. This horse trading dragged on for nearly four months before they finally settled on a surprising figure, Cardinal Barnaba Chiaramonti confessor to Pope Pius VI, became Pope Pius VII. Cardinal Chiaramonti had been by Pope Pius VI's side as the Pope watched his legacy turned to ashes. Not only was Chiaramonti a powerful clergyman in his own right, he was the confessor to the Pope and privy to his innermost thoughts and personal struggles. Napoleon himself could not have asked for a better outcome. The new pope was not particularly close to the Holy Roman Emperor. He had watched his predecessor's legacy be tarnished and ultimately totally consumed by the conflict with France. And he had no desire to see the same thing happen to his own reign. Not only that, Pius VII was something of a liberal, at least compared to the other cardinals. In his capacity as bishop of the city of Imola in central Italy, he had instructed his flock to obey the Republican government installed by the French, and even spoke of his hope that the political ideals of the Enlightenment could be reconciled with Catholic teachings. Quote, Christian virtue makes men good Democrats. Equality is not an idea of the philosophes, but of Christ. I do not believe that the Catholic religion is opposed to democracy. End quote. This is essentially the same argument Napoleon and pro-Bonaparte Catholics like Chateaubriand were trying to make. Philosophically, there was surprisingly little daylight between Napoleon's views and those of the new pope. Of course, 
philosophical agreement is one thing, but these two men were still in charge of institutions that were deeply at odds. Neither Napoleon nor Pius VII were naive enough to believe that sharing a similar worldview was anything more than one step on the road to reconciling. Still, it is quite remarkable how perfectly fate had set the stage for an agreement. Pius VI just happened to die right on the eve of Napoleon's coup, and then the strange internal politics of the conclave threw out a dark horse compromise candidate, who just happened to be quite amenable to negotiations. Perhaps Napoleon was right, and there really was some divine hand guiding France towards a reconciliation with the Catholic Church. Of course, bringing the two sides together was just the beginning of a long, arduous process. The fact that Napoleon and the Pope had similar views on religion did make a compromise possible, but certainly not inevitable. In the early stages, negotiations were handled by Foreign Minister Talleyrand for France and Cardinal Giuseppe Spina for the Vatican. Napoleon and Talleyrand treated the cardinal to a game of good cop, bad cop. Napoleon would storm into the negotiations, raging that the Pope's demands were totally unacceptable, threatening that French armies would invade Rome once again if Spina did not cave to his demands within a week. He ranted about establishing an independent French national church, just like King Henry VIII of England had done. He even threatened to convert to Lutheranism, and take the whole country with him. Once Cardinal Spina was suitably shaken up, Napoleon would storm back out, leaving Talleyrand to lay on his oily aristocratic charm to smooth things over, and of course, in the process, gently encourage Spina to acquiesce to Napoleon's demands. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've seen Napoleon use these types of calculated fake outbursts in the past. Even as dictator of France, it remained one of his favorite negotiating tactics. He would try to bully a cardinal into surrender, just as he had done with so many hapless coalition generals during the first Italian campaign. Poor Cardinal Spina couldn't take the heat, and so he was replaced with a slightly more experienced diplomat, Cardinal Ercole Consalvi. One of the biggest sticking points was purely conceptual. The Vatican wanted Catholicism restored 
as the official state religion of France. Pope Pius was willing to make a lot of concessions as to what a state religion might look like under the type of modern, Enlightenment-inspired government Napoleon was trying to build. The Pope understood this would have to be a new French church, adapted to new circumstances. He understood that meant Catholicism would probably never regain its former dominant position. However, whatever this new type of state looked like, he wanted it to be formally, legally Catholic, and for that fact to be explicitly confirmed in public by the regime. To Napoleon, this was unthinkable. He believed the state must serve the public interest and the public interest alone. Officially establishing a state religion would subordinate his government to the Pope and to the interests of the Church. It would also mean leaving out hundreds of thousands of Frenchmen who did not practice Catholicism, either out of personal conviction or because they were members of other religious groups. French Jews and Protestants had generally been very supportive of the Revolution, and many had proven their loyalty with service to the New France. For them, establishing Catholicism as the official state religion would be a particularly bitter betrayal. Remember, Napoleon's project was uniting all Frenchmen, not only the Catholic ones. Bonaparte could be quite cynical, and had abandoned many of the radical Enlightenment principles of his youth, but his belief in freedom of conscience remained rock-solid. Declaring Catholicism the state religion of France was a line he would not cross, not even in a purely symbolic gesture. Another major sticking point was the issue of land. Before the Revolution, the Catholic Church had been one of the biggest landowners in France. As we've discussed, the very concept of property is a bit slippery in this era. But depending on how you look at it, in 1789, the Church and its various institutions owned somewhere between 5 and 10% of all the property in the entire country. On November 2, 1789, all of it was seized by the government in one fell swoop. All of this property became part of the so-called Bien Nationaux. Some of it was auctioned off to private developers to raise hard cash for the war effort. Some of it was converted to other purposes, and the rest was used as collateral to back the Assignat, a new paper currency issued by the revolutionary government. The Republicans saw this confiscated church property as part of the patrimony of the entire country. From their perspective, all they had really done is put it to work to actually serve the needs of the entire country, rather than being hoarded by some corrupt foreign institution. Of course, the Vatican had a different perspective. They did not recognize the legality of this seizure. To them, this was theft, not fundamentally different from picking a pocket or stealing a horse. It was also a grave insult and a wound to the church's prestige. They could not let this crime go unanswered, or history would record the precedent for all time that all any government needed to do to take the church's property was sign a bill. The Pope demanded monetary compensation for every inch of lost church land. 
This was not only a philosophical problem, but a practical one as well. If the church was to return to France, how would it operate? Under the old regime, French Catholicism had mostly financed itself, partially through charity, but largely with the revenues from its extensive land holdings. Without that land, who would pay for the operations of the church? Unfortunately for the Vatican, compensation for this seized land was another non-starter for Napoleon. Part of his objection was that he largely agreed with the judgment of the revolutionaries. He had detested the massive wealth of the pre-revolutionary church, and considered France better off for it having been seized. But the biggest stumbling block was probably the price tag. Imagine how your government would react today to the idea of suddenly paying out the value of 10% of all the property in the country in a single lump sum of hard cash. It's hard to translate this into modern terms, but I found one estimate that placed the value of all the land in the United States at $23 trillion. So, this would be the equivalent of someone asking the modern U.S. government for somewhere in the neighborhood of $200 billion. Napoleon had a lot of expensive items on his agenda. He was not going to blow the entire budget sending money to a former enemy, especially not if it meant accepting the principle that France had been wrong to seize the lands of the church, which Napoleon did not agree with. These were real serious disagreements, but I don't want to give the impression that these negotiations were entirely contentious. There were also areas of agreement. Napoleon wanted the right to nominate all Catholic bishops based in French territory. This particular concession actually had a very long history. It had been granted to the kings of France way back in the Renaissance. The Vatican had long ago accepted this as the price of doing business with a monarch as powerful as the French king, and they had no serious objections to offering Napoleon the same courtesy. They did insist the Pope retain the right to dismiss French bishops as he saw fit, and the right of refusal to the government's nominees, the same rights his predecessors had enjoyed before the Revolution. Napoleon did not object. And so, on this issue, things simply returned to the way they had been under the old regime. Although it's worth mentioning that in this case, the pre-revolutionary status quo was already something of a compromise between state power and the traditional rights of the church. Another area of easy compromise had to do with the Sabbath. During the most radical phase of the revolution, the Jacobins had attempted to eradicate the old Christian calendar and replace it with a new system that was more logical and more in line with revolutionary values. Under the new calendar, months were a uniform 30 days, with three 10-day weeks each. What the metric system did for weights and measures, the new Republican calendar would do for time. But it never really caught on. Publications and government pronouncements used the new system because they were legally required to, but it was only really popular among the most zealous revolutionaries. Honestly, I think one of the biggest flaws with the new system was that people went from having four weekends a month to three weekends a month. What kind of person gets excited about losing a quarter of their weekends? 
After the fall of the Jacobins, the government continued to use the Republican calendar, but became less aggressive and enthusiastic in promoting its use. By the time Napoleon took power, many people, perhaps even a majority of the country, had reverted back to the old seven-day weeks. And so, when the Vatican demanded the French government return to the seven-day calendar and designate Sunday as the official day of rest, Napoleon was quick to agree. It was probably not a smart move for the Catholics to bring this up. Napoleon was able to present this as a real concession, when in all likelihood it was already a foregone conclusion, regardless of the outcome of the negotiations. Perhaps this slip-up is indicative of a larger pattern, because the preliminary agreement produced by these negotiations was heavily slanted towards the French. Cardinal Consalvi had given Napoleon almost everything he wanted, and gotten precious little in return. Foreign Minister Talleyrand had found a clever compromise on the issue of designating Catholicism as the official state religion. The government would make an official acknowledgement of the Catholic Church's unique position in France as the religion followed by the vast majority of the population, but it would stop short of designating a state religion. Not much of a concession to simply acknowledge reality. There would be no direct financial compensation for the lost church lands. Instead, Napoleon promised the government would fund all the church's operations within France, including paying state salaries to the clergy. At first glance, this was a pretty big concession. Napoleon had just put the government on the hook for millions of francs annually. However, it also meant that every priest and bishop in France would be beholden to him for their livelihood. In effect, they would become employees of the state. In a sense, Napoleon was buying away a great deal of the church's autonomy. He would also grant similar concessions to the Protestant and Jewish communities. So, in effect, this put Catholicism on equal footing with France's two main minority religious groups. All Catholic clergymen in France would be required to take an oath of loyalty to the government. Quote, I swear and promise before God on the Holy Scriptures to observe obedience and loyalty to the government established by the Constitution of the French Republic. I also promise to have no dealings, to attend no council, to converse with no group, whether within or without, which would be contrary to the public peace. And if, in my diocese or elsewhere, I learn that something is being plotted to the detriment of the state, I will make it known to the government. End quote. It was a similar oath of loyalty to the revolutionary government which had provoked this entire conflict in the first place. The Vatican claimed this was different. The new oath was being administered with the support and consent of the Pope, and written in collaboration with Vatican representatives. The old oath was demanded in defiance of the Pope's orders. From the perspective of Catholic doctrine, that is a real and important distinction. However, this provision was too much to swallow for some French Catholics. 
Around 100,000 conservative Catholics quit the church altogether over this particular article of the agreement. The movement went nowhere and shrank quickly, but its surviving descendants didn't officially reconcile with Rome until the early 20th century. Under the terms of the agreement, Catholic masses were even legally required to include a prayer for the government and its leaders. Even the exact wording was spelled out to the letter. Domine, salvam fac republicam. Domine, salvos fac consules. God save the republic. God save the consuls. That probably sounds very authoritarian to modern ears. But remember, a Catholic service of this era was essentially just a priest reading from a Latin script. And for centuries, European rulers had demanded similar lines be inserted, praying for the well-being of the king and the maintenance of the kingdom, etc. But I doubt anyone had ever envisioned offering a prayer for an Enlightenment-inspired republic, which wasn't even officially Catholic. Once all these provisions were agreed in principle, the chief negotiators handed their work over to a team of lawyers and theologians, drawn from both sides, to draft a final document. This group included Joseph Bonaparte. Remember, not only was he the person Napoleon knew better and trusted more than anyone else, he was a trained lawyer who had made a career in the French Foreign Service in Italy, and had even served as ambassador to the Vatican so he was actually very well qualified for this role. One issue this team had to decide was what to call the document they were producing. It was an agreement between two independent sovereigns, negotiated by diplomats, so treaty is the obvious choice. But that's not quite right. A treaty has to do with two countries' external relations. This agreement dealt exclusively with matters inside France's borders. That was actually spelled out quite explicitly. At this high level, these types of semantic games can have profound consequences. They really could not call this agreement a treaty. And so, they did what Catholic scholars do best, dug into the history of the Church to find some kind of precedent. In their research, they discovered a term that had been used for agreements between popes and medieval kings centuries earlier. It was called a concordat. And that term has stuck. With a few exceptions, that remains the common name for this type of negotiation between a national government and the Catholic Church. The most recent concordat is the Concordat of 2004, signed with Portugal. The scholars finished their work in early summer of 1801, and on July 15th, the day after Bastille Day, Napoleon and Vatican representatives signed the Concordat. I hope the episodes leading up to this one have emphasized what a momentous event this was. After more than ten years, the Catholic Church was at peace with the Revolution. A bitter and seemingly intractable conflict was finally over. One of the most tragic chapters in French history was closed. Well, formally closed, at least. As is always the case, the reality on the ground took a little while to catch up with the decrees of the powerful. After such an ugly, messy conflict... 
the ensuing peace was bound to be awkward and incomplete. Arguably, France has never fully recovered from the civil conflict of the 1790s. But these are matters for future episodes. Next time, we'll examine the reaction to the Concordat. They say a good compromise leaves everyone unhappy, and as we'll see, there may be some truth to that. Until then, thanks for listening.